Our text this afternoon is Ephesians chapter 5, verses 22 through 30. And this is God's holy word for us this day. Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its savior. Now as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. Husbands, love your wives. As Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. In the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as Christ does the church because we are members of his body. Pray with me, friends. Father, as we enter a time of studying your word, I would just plead with you, God, to teach us, teach us well. Lord, if your spirit is not present, if your spirit is not active in teaching us and guiding us, then time will not be used to its ultimate. So I plead with you in the name of Jesus, be with us. Use your word to teach us, to convict us, to train us. Shape our hearts to match your design. And that's the thing we pray in Jesus' holy name. Amen. You can be seated. Well, in our study of marriage over the past few weeks, we've established a consistent pattern of the Bible presenting to us a few clear truths that are present before the fall, they're present after the fall in the Old Testament, and we saw last week that they are also affirmed in the New Testament. Some of these truths include that marriage is the lifelong covenant union of one man and one woman. Marriage is the only proper way for human beings to experience sexual union. God charges the man in a marriage with the responsibility of leadership in the marriage. God charges the woman in the marriage to help her husband to fulfill his God-given tasks. And marriage, generally, we should assume that it will result in children. That's part of the purpose Again, we, our hearts break for those who haven't had that experience and want it, but we should assume that to be part of what we're doing. And believers are only to marry other believers. Those are all things that we saw. And while establishing these truths in the Scripture, we've always tried to remember that God is good, that God's Word is perfect, and God's ways are perfect. And because God knows you and me better than we know ourselves, because He designed the 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 um, universe, because he designed humanity in his perfect wisdom, because God is holy and perfect. We can trust that God's ways are holy and perfect, and they're the best thing for us. As Psalm 1830 says, this God, his way is perfect. The word of the Lord proves true. He's a shield for all those who take refuge in him. So, 
As we look to God's standards for the household, which we find in Ephesians chapters 5 and 6, we should be eager to learn from these things for our good. We should want to learn God's perfect ways. And we shouldn't be surprised that the ways of the Lord are not the ways of a lost and fallen world. We shouldn't be shocked to find that a godless world would mock the standards and the design of God. But we should be eager to embrace the design from the Lord, to embrace the Lord's word, to embrace the Lord's ways for our good and for God's glory. In the letter of Paul to the Ephesians, which we last looked at on the last Sunday of the month of July, the apostle took three chapters we had said to remind us of the gospel and the new life that comes to all people, Jews and Gentiles, by God's grace through faith in Jesus Christ. And because of that gospel in chapter 4, Paul began to charge the people who know Jesus to walk in a manner worthy of our calling. He charged us to put off many different kinds of sin and to strive to live to reflect the goodness and the perfections of Jesus. Then just before the section that we're studying today, Paul called on Christians to work for peace and for God-glorifying unity in the church, which involves living out our relationships in a godly way. And now, Paul will, under the influence of the Holy Spirit, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, he will direct us to live in our relationships, in our households, in a way that is for our good and for God's glory. So from chapter 5, verse 22, to chapter 6, verse 9, we examine three different human relationships that include authority and submission. In each one of those cases, Paul will first address the one under authority. Then Paul will speak to the responsibilities of those who lead. And in each instance, the one who is under authority is actually called to live under authority. And in each instance, the one called by God to lead is called to do so in a godly and an unselfish way. Now, before we begin, let me say with utter clarity, I will not, in this set of messages, call any person to submit to sin or to submit to abuse. All human authority is exercised under the ultimate authority of God. Spousal abuse and child abuse are not things we tolerate. They are against God's word, they're against the law of the land, and scripture does not ever call you to accept that abuse. Instead, if you ever find yourself in a situation of abusive authority, seek help from the church or from law enforcement, institutions which have God-given authority to command abusers to stop. But, we must also understand that simply because some people have used authority to be abusive does not indicate that all authority is wrong. In point of fact, God has designed society to function with people in authority and people subject to authority. And that's true whether you're thinking about church leaders and church members 
government and its citizens, commanders and their soldiers, bosses and their employees, children and their parents, and as we will see today, husbands and their wives. If you want to take notes, there's two main points that we'll make as we look at wives and husbands living for Jesus at home. Point number one, wives submit to your husbands for the glory of Christ. Wives submit to your husbands for the glory of Christ. Verse 22 to 24 read, Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its Savior. Now as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. God's word is and has always been clear that men and women are of absolutely equal worth in the sight of God. Each is made in God's image. However, men and women are to display the glory of God in different ways. Different roles that we fulfill in our marriages. Women in a marriage, by submitting to righteous authority, demonstrate the glory of the church of Jesus Christ, which is joyfully under the leadership of the Savior. Let's let scripture teach us, even if this teaching is very much countercultural. You guys would agree this is countercultural, right? The word submit literally means to arrange yourself under the authority of another. The Greek hupotasso means to place oneself, to arrange oneself underneath another's authority. And it's interesting, that, that verb is found in verse 21. That's where we get the verb from. Verse 21 said, submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. And then verse 22 follows it up with an example from Paul, wives to their own husbands. That's literally what the Greek says, wives to their own husbands. The biblical call here is that a godly wife, for the glory of Jesus Christ, will arrange herself under the leadership of her husband. Now, take note right away of the importance of the wife submitting. Which husband does the wife submit to? Look at the text and you tell me. To which husband does she submit? Her, her own husband. It's the Greek word idios. It is, I'm not kidding you, where we get the word idiot from. And no, it's not saying, wife, submit to your idiot husband. It is saying, see, an, an idiot is a person who only knows what he knows and will not learn from others. That's where the word comes from. But when it says here, your own, your idios husband, it shows us that this is not a text calling wives, women, to submit to all men in every single setting. Neither is it a call that a wife should submit to every husband that's out there. The command is given by God that a wife would voluntarily arrange herself under the leadership of the one husband God has given her. 
What about that phrase, as to the Lord? This is not saying that a wife is to submit to her husband to the same extent, to the same degree that she submits to God, but it's a call for a wife to see her willingly allowing herself to be led by her husband is a part of her submission to the Lord. A godly wife submits to her husband not because her husband is better or smarter or anything like that. She submits because she desires to glorify the Lord in her, in her life. She, she wants to glorify the Lord in the way that God has designed her. And she finds her joy when she sees the glory of God. Verse 23, Paul draw, draws out a little parallel to illustrate the pattern of godly submission. He compares the relationship of the husband to the wife to the relationship of Christ and the church. Jesus Christ is the head of the church. He is the leader and the authority over the church. In the same way, in the marriage relationship, the husband is supposed to be the head of the household. As the church submits to the loving leadership of Jesus Christ, Paul says that the wife in a godly marriage is to be submitted to the leadership of her husband. Two more phrases I want to point out to you real quick, and I want them not to confuse you. Verse 23, we see the phrase, and is himself its savior. That's referring to Jesus as the savior of the church. It is not suggesting that a human husband is the savior of the wife. So, ladies, if that ever confused you, don't worry about that one, okay? We're going to see how a husband is supposed to be like Christ in the instructions to the men, and they get much rougher instructions than the ladies actually get. But understand, Jesus Christ plays a role of loving protection and provision and leadership for his church. Understanding that and knowing that it's good, we see that a wife should find there to be a parallel in the structure of her relationship between herself and her husband, Only by setting herself under her husband's loving authority can a wife support the husband in his God-given calling to provide for, to protect, to guide the family. And then verse 24 says, A wife is submit to her husband in everything. Again, be careful with the phrase. It is not saying that a wife is ever supposed to submit to her husband if he asks her to sin. That would violate the scriptural warrant that we know that we are to obey God above men. The idea is an issue of category. The call is not that a wife follows her husband's lead only when she likes what he says, only when she agrees. I want you to imagine if you were an employee at work, you might work with your boss to try to get your boss to change her mind his mind about something. But if you're obeying, if you're following, if you're submitting to your boss, do you only follow when you agree? Or do you sometimes say, this is not what I agree with, but I'll follow you because you're the leader? See what I'm saying? A wife does not submit only when she agrees. She doesn't submit only when she says, this is exactly what I wanted to do anyway. This is not, when it says submit in everything, it's not saying that the husband is allowed to leave in the financial matters of the house, but not in the spiritual matters of the house. It's a call that in all areas of life, wherever possible under the word of God, a wife should willingly and voluntarily follow her husband's lead. So what then is the biblical call? 
For a Christian wife, the call is to assume for herself the God-glorifying role of supporting her husband's leadership in the home. How do you support your husband? Wives often can see things husbands cannot. Is that true, men? Yes, Yes, indeed. Wives often sense things husbands do not. So the call to follow your husband here is not a call to be withdrawn and non-participative. A godly wife works alongside her husband for the good of the home and to the glory of God. The question, however, here is how does submission work? Some people try to tell you that that if you submit to anybody's leadership, you stop thinking. You don't participate in decisions being made, but that is not what submission means, and it never has been. Nor does submission mean that a wife may not try to influence her husband, and she might influence her husband with godly discussion. She might try to influence her husband with strong, not sinful, but strong argument. Again, husbands, have you ever known a wife who can present a good, strong argument? And that's not bad. Submission does not mean that you put on a false, little, wispy, quiet voice that isn't yours so that you can look softer. Submission is not that you pretend that you don't have an opinion. Submission certainly does not mean following any leader into sin or allow yourself to be abused. So what is submission? Wayne Grudem, author of a lovely systematic theology book, and one of the co-authors and editors of the book Recovering Biblical Manhood and Womanhood, says, Submission is an inner quality of gentleness that affirms the leadership of her husband. Be submissive to your husband means that a wife will willingly submit to her husband's authority and leadership in the marriage. It means making a choice to affirm her husband as leader within the limits of obedience to Christ. It includes a demeanor that honors him as leader even when she dissents. Of course, it's an attitude that goes much deeper than mere obedience, but the idea of willing obedience to a husband's authority is certainly part of this submission. John Piper, the former pastor of Bethlehem Baptist Church in Minneapolis and another contributor to Recovering Biblical Manhood and Womanhood, says, the basic meaning of submission would be recognize and honor the greater responsibility of your husband to supply your protection and sustenance. Be disposed to yield to his authority in Christ and be inclined to follow his leadership. Piper goes on to say, The reason I say that submission means a disposition to yield and an inclination to follow is that the little phrase, as to the Lord in Ephesians 5 verse 22, limits the scope of submission. No wife should replace the authority of Christ with the authority of her husband. She cannot yield or follow her husband into sin. But even where a Christian wife may have to stand with Christ against the sinful will of her husband, she can still have a spirit of submission. She can show by her attitude and behavior 
that she does not like resisting his will and that she longs for him to forsake sin and lead in righteousness so that her disposition to honor him can again produce harmony. So in this mysterious parable of marriage, the wife is to take her special cue from God's purpose to the church in its relation to Christ. Piper goes on and says, Submission is the divine calling of a wife to honor and affirm her husband's leadership and help carry it through according to her gifts. So what's a wife supposed to do? Willingly choose to participate in this relationship of authority and submission. This does not devalue a person. To submit to a leader never devalues a person. Show the world by your life, by your behavior, by your attitude, the beautiful relationship of the church toward Jesus Christ. Take an active role in the good of the family, for sure. Talk with your husband about all sorts of decisions. But let him know he is ultimately the one responsible for the decision. He is the one responsible for the well-being of the family. You're there to help him and to support him, but you will not take his job and be the head of the family. I once heard a lady talking about this, joking that her definition of submit is ducking so God can hit her husband. And there's a bit of truth to that, isn't there? You don't submit yourself to abuse. You don't follow him into sin. But apart from those areas, willingly place yourself under your husband's authority. And wives, if you let your husbands know you support his leadership, that will encourage him to lead in a godly way. If your husband has any character at all as a godly man, your willingness to submit to your husband will drive him to his knees as he seeks to lead in a godly way. Paul wants us to see that there is an order in the home, and he begins by calling women to willingly play the role, the God-glorifying role that the Lord has prescribed for them in their homes. My Old Testament professor used to say this, If God made Adam to be an earthly king, then we must see that Eve was to be his queen. There's nothing in that that devalues a woman. Even if her role is to submit to her husband, and it is clear that there is nothing in this command that allows for the husband to abuse his wife. At the same time, Paul's words for wives about living for Jesus at home through godly submission show us that God has an ordered plan in the house. Just because you become a Christian does not do away with relationships of authority and submission. That's not the biblical pattern. Following Jesus does not give anybody the pattern to declare themselves independent of all earthly authority or God-designed structures. And we honor Jesus Christ best when we play our roles to his glory. Wives, submit to your husbands for the glory of Christ. What do you say, men? Should we be done now? 
What do you say, wives? Should we should be done now? There may be something else here, right? Let's look at what the Lord says to the men. How about it? Isn't it interesting to know that Paul has far more to say to the men than to the women? In the original, there are 40 words addressed to the wives. There are 115 to the husbands. God's word will place a far greater burden on the leader than the one called to submit. And that's what we're going to examine next in point number two. Husbands. Love your wives for the glory of Christ. Husbands, love your wives for the glory of Christ. Look at verse 25. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. This is a fascinating bit of writing. I don't think you see it because we're not in that culture anymore. But this is a stunning piece of writing. See, Paul just upheld the institution of the family, and then he spoke to husbands right here in a dramatically countercultural way to his day. You see, all of the people in Ephesus believed wives were supposed to submit to their husbands. That was a common Ephesian thing. And the expectation would be for the command for the husbands to be, all right, wives, submit to your husbands, and you husbands, you be sure you make them submit. But that is not what is written here. See, this is where the Christian family looks different. Because only in the family according to the word of God, only in the Christian family is the call on the husband to love his wife like Jesus loves his church. Husband, did you hear that? Your job is not to put your wife in her place. Your job is to love her sacrificially, extremely, like Jesus. So what does it mean to love? I fear that many people pull the teeth from this passage because they focus only on one aspect of love. They, they look at this passage and they see the word love and they assume it means a feeling, a gushy feeling, a caring emotion or some sort of passion For sure, love should include feelings and caring, but Paul is being clear that the love that he's talking about here is the love of Jesus Christ toward the people he would save. And in Romans 5, 8, the Bible says God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. What is love? Love is, and you could write this down if you're that kind of person, Love is a deep and abiding commitment to do another person good even when this is costly to the one loving. How do you feel about that for a definition? Love is a deep and abiding commitment to do another person good even when this is costly to the one loving. Did Jesus love you like that? What do you think? Did Jesus love us like that? That's what Jesus' love looks like, isn't it? Love, yes, includes deep affection. Yes, it includes caring and emotion. Love can be very emotionally strong and powerful. 
But the emotion is never the core of love or it's not love. Love is primarily the willingness to lay down your life like Jesus in order to do another person genuine good. And do see that in that understanding of love, you better know what true good is. What is the greatest good? The greatest good that any one person can do for another is to help them see the glory of God. To help them participate in the glory of God. To find their joy in the God who made them. That's the most loving thing you could ever do for a person. If I do you good, I point you to Jesus. If I do you good, I help you love Jesus and serve Jesus. If I do you good, I turn you away from sinning against Jesus. And sometimes that's comfortable and sometimes that's not. But love lays down one's life to do others' genuine biblical good. To love like Jesus strips all harshness from a husband's call to lead in the home. Husbands, you cuss your wives. You demean them. You make fun of them. You're not loving like Jesus. George Knight comments on this verse by saying, In so doing, Paul emphasizes that the headship of the husband over his wife must not be negative, oppressive, or reactionary. Instead, it must be a headship of love in which the husband gives of himself for his wife's good, nourishing and cherishing the beloved one, who as his equal voluntarily submits to his headship. Men, authority at home equals self-sacrificing responsibility. It is hard. It is not about you. It's not about making yourself feel strong. Authority is certainly not about you having a slave in the house. It is about demonstrating the glory of Christ's sacrifice for his church. Yes, your wife is to be under your authority, but your authority is founded on Christ-like love and sacrifice. So husband, yes, take responsibility. Take responsibility for the family's spiritual growth. Take responsibility for the family's financial and physical security. Take responsibility to make the tough decisions when nobody wants to make them. Always, always consider the input of your wife. She's probably smarter than you. But when it's all said and done, it is your responsibility, husband, to take care of her and to make the final call. The whole of the burden, husband, is yours. And that's why your wife is a helper. She helps you with the burden. But the burden of leadership is yours to bear. This call on your life is not a call to strength and power. It's a call to self-sacrifice. Look at verses 25 to 27. 
Again, it said, Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. Christ gave himself up for the church that he might sanctify her. This is not saying that the husband's job is to sanctify his wife, by the way. Yes, husbands, you lead toward Jesus in all things. But, but this is an explanation of the purpose of Jesus toward the church. This is not saying, oh yes, husband, you just sanctify your wife by pouring the word over her. You can help your wife with the word, but don't think that you're the Holy Spirit in your wife's life. Amen? To sanctify a thing is to set it apart or to make it holy. Jesus went through hell, suffering the full wrath of Almighty God on the cross to pay for the sins of all the people he would ever forgive. Why did he do that? He did it to rescue people. He did it to make us holy, acceptable in the sight of God. He did it to make it possible for the people of God to be able to live eternally with God. Verses 26 and 27, Paul shows us that Jesus, through his blood shed on the cross and through the revelation of the perfect word of God, Jesus cleanses the church. See, the doctrine of sanctification, if you want to be a little theological with me for a minute, are you guys awake enough to be theological with me right now? I just need to check with you, okay? I, I, this, is, this is long. There are two parts to the doctrine of sanctification you need to know. On the one hand, when you are saved, you are immediately sanctified, meaning you have been immediately set apart as holy to the Lord. That's true, isn't it? God sees you when you're saved as a holy child of God under the blood of Jesus. Praise God for that, right? At the same time, we are also being progressively sanctified. We're being made more like we should be day by day. How many of you are more mature in your faith today than you were five years ago? I surely hope so, right? That's step by step. Now, by the way, has it been a steady mountain climb all the way up for you? David Pallison says, our lives are kind of like a yo-yo in the hand of of a man walking upstairs. It's pretty good, isn't it? We do best if we can shorten the string, by the way. That's sanctification. So how are we Christian? How's the church sanctified? First, you're sanctified on this side by just being saved, right? You are cleansed by Jesus. You are, you're made like Jesus, but also you are sanctified as you grow more and more like Jesus. And how do you grow to be more and more like Jesus? You grow to be more and like, more like Jesus through the word of God. As we learn God's word, as we submit to God's word, as we obey God's word, we are changed by God's word. We become what God intends us to be. That is part of our sanctification. And there's a cool illustration here. It's the illustration of a bride getting ready for her wedding. Again, for you married folks or you who've known somebody getting married, you ever, you ever be part of, of a woman getting ready for her wedding? 
That's some crazy stuff, folks. There are things that go on there that I do not understand. But here's the illustration. The bridegroom, the fiancé, gives his affianced, he gives her everything she needs to get ready for the wedding day. He gives her, he buys her the dress, he gives her whatever other clothes that she needs because women wear stuff I don't understand. He, he, he gives her the money to go get her hair done and, 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 and twist it in ways that I don't understand. And, and he, he gives her perfumes and chemicals and days at the spa. He does it all. Gives her everything she needs to be ready for the wedding day. He does not skimp this husband. Why would he do that? Why, why, why would he give so much to her? And in this text, it says, in giving to her, in making her happy, in helping her feel as beautiful as she could possibly feel, what is he doing? He presents her to himself as a lovely bride. She gets what she wants. And he gets what he wants in the wedding. Make sense? The Bible tells us that Jesus, through his sacrifice on the cross and through the holy word of God, prepares the church, all of the people of God, to be made into a perfect bride for Jesus. Now again, don't be confused by that imagery. You individually are not a bride of Christ. The church as a whole, the church as a unit, all believers, that is figuratively the bride with Christ as the husband. How did Jesus get the bride? Jesus got the church as his bride by walking through the greatest pain and sorrow imaginable. He laid down his life for this bride. And to the glory of Jesus Christ, to the glory of Almighty God, the bride is going to be Jesus's forever. Now, you tie this together with the point that Paul's making. The husband in the marriage is to love his wife like Christ loves the church. The husband is to be willing to walk through hell to do his wife genuine good. And yes, the husband knows that doing his wife ultimate good is a thing that will in the end do the husband good too. Ephesians 5, 28 through 30. In the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes it and cherishes it, just as Christ does the church, because we are members of his body. So Paul gives us an illustration here, and the illustration he gives here proves the thing I just said to you. A husband who does his wife good is a husband who does himself good. By the way, ladies, does that sound selfish to you? Or would you go ahead and just take the good? I mean, if somebody said to me, Travis, I want to give you $20 million because it would make me feel good, I would not say, you are so selfish. I would say, thank you very much. A husband doing his wife good is a husband doing himself good. 
It is crazy to think about a man who would intentionally harm, it says, his own body. We don't, we don't cut off fingers or toes just for the fun of it, right? Any of y'all takers on that? If somebody deals with the urge to cut off fingers or toes just for the fun of it, we, we refer to that as mental illness, right? We, we protect our bodies. Don't, don't you protect your body? How many of you feed your body? Yes? Okay. You put clothes on it? Clothes on it? Right? Right? Okay. Sometimes exercise? Let's not talk about that. We, we take medicine when we're sick, don't we? We have surgeries when our lives are in danger. There are people right now who, again, God bless them, they, they realize that their health is at a higher level of risk than maybe other people's health is. And what are they doing? They're, they're staying home and they're, they're being extra, extra careful during this weird season so that they can be as protected as they can be. And, and, and that's okay, you know? That is, that, is, that is wise if you are at risk to protect yourself, right? Well, if we're thinking rationally, right, nobody hurts his body just because he can. And in just the same way, no rational husband will harm his wife. Because to do so, husband, is to hurt yourself and to dishonor God and to get yourself in all kinds of trouble, Again, I'm not saying with that, by the way, husband, that you never displease your wife. There may be a time when godly leadership in the home forces you, husband, not to do a thing that your wife wants you to do. There may be a time when a husband, again, just let's say a husband has a wife who has a drinking problem, and he may have to tell her, honey, we've got to stop this that might not go over smoothly at the initial conversation, but it's loving. There may be a time when a husband has to tell a wife who is destroying her reputation to stop posting nasty things on social media. Could you guys imagine somebody able to lose their friendships because of what they write online? It may be that a godly husband has to say, honey, stop that. That could upset her for a moment, but it is ultimately going to be for her good. Godly husbands take care of and love their wives in the way that any wise person takes care of his own body. It's a profound call to godliness. It's a profound call to self-sacrificial servant leadership. It is not a call to tyranny. It is a call to look like Jesus as you love your wife. Friends, God has designed us for good. His design is perfect. And we always, always hurt ourselves if we go against God's design. Now again, let me remind you. Psalm 1830. This God, His way is perfect. The word of the Lord proves true. He is a shield for all those who take refuge in Him. God knows how He made us. God knows that he shaped marriage to be a beautiful union of one man and one woman for life. He designed marriage to be a covenant of love and companionship. And God knows that he made men and women to be different, to complement one another. And it means that even though we have equal worth in the eyes of God, we play different roles. Husbands and wives, I urge you, play the roles that God has given you to play and you will find that God's ways are perfect and the Lord is a shield to those who take refuge in him. 
And don't we love the fact that as husbands are called to love their wives, we're called to remember the love of the Lord Jesus Christ for his church. Jesus walked out of heaven. He laid down an unimaginable glory to bring us to himself. Jesus suffered unimaginable torment on the cross. He died a death he did not deserve to die so that he could pay the price for your sins and mine. Jesus rose from the grave and he conquered death to give us eternal life. Jesus showed us genuine love by laying down his life so he could do us good. And he will rejoice with us when the saved are presented to him as a beautiful eternal bride and a gift from his father. That's how Jesus is glorified. That's how we get eternal joy in the Savior. And marriage is supposed to remind you of that. But I'll tell you this, if you do not have Jesus, if you're not yet in Christ, if you're not forgiven by Jesus, you do not have a happy eternity promised to you. And I would urge you, turn away from your sin and surrender to Jesus. Get under his grace so that you might have the benefits of his death and his resurrection. Because then and only then will you truly see the glory of God's perfect design. Come to Jesus, experience the joy of his forgiveness, and live the life God shaped you to live. Let's pray together. Father, I thank you again for your word. And Lord, you know how hard this is. You know our weaknesses, you know our sins, you know the culture in which we swim. I would just ask you, Father, Take your word, plant it deep in us, shape us, fashion us in your likeness. Help us to obey, not by our own strength, but through the power of the Holy Spirit, the power of Christ within us. Forgive us our failings. And draw us close. We pray it in Jesus' holy name. Amen.